We're on chapter 18. So join me as we read those verses. After this, I saw another angel coming, coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she, has, she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she, is, she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And in her, oh, sorry, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets, of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. Okay, 
So, let's start in this chapter. So, have you ever noticed that when you watch a movie, if you've watched a movie that is based on a book, you can never read the book again without seeing those actors and actresses in the characters' roles, right? It's kind of frustrating. And one of the things I noticed was, um, so for instance, think of some of these. These are the ones that have impacted me. From now on, Elijah Wood is forever Frodo. He's Frodo. I've read the book a million times. He's Frodo. Um, Harry Potter is now Daniel Radcliffe. It's over. This will be his face forever. Um, Going back a little bit for some of you older folks, Humphrey Bogart is Sam Spade. There's no doubt about it. Even commercials talk about this, you know. Humphrey Bogart. Um, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter. If you've ever seen Silence of the Lambs. You can't unsee it. You read the book and it's like, you can't do it without talking like Anthony Hopkins. And lastly, though there's many we could say, Jack Nicholson is Jack Torrance from The Shining. There's no doubt about it. And I bring that up because, and you may have other movies that you think the same way. Anne of Green Gables, isn't it that Canadian girl from the 80s? I don't remember her name. Poo who? Megan, Megan, very good, yes. Megan, Megan Fellows? 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 Anyway, either way, you're right. So, um, and the reason I bring that up is the world is like this. Images are so powerful in the world that it's difficult to see beyond what you experience in life and to see what's actually happening behind it. When someone comes and punches me directly in the face, it's easy to see the guy who punches me. What's more difficult is to believe revelation when it says something is behind even that punch, prompting him to that evil. And it's very difficult to see behind it. And this is why at the very first sermon, it was called Seeing Differently, and it's all about how revelation presents us with these counter-images. It hammers you with these blunt, awesome, terrifying visions, and they're meant to be intentionally shocking so that they take the images of the world and purge them out. They purge your imagination and bring in these new images and say, this is how you should be seeing the world. These are the new ways. So it has to come with very, very big images. And when these images that come are very... The reason we have to... We, it does this is our imaginations need to be exercised in order to see the world the way God says it is as opposed to the way the world does. Because the world says the powerful are laying hold of the world. And Christ says, the lamb is the way to power, which is a very radically counter-cultural idea. Um, the world says, you're only valuable so long as you're productive. If you're a senior citizen, thank you very much. Take your pension, you're out. If, you're, if, you're, if we find that in the, fe- in the womb, that that baby has potential of being disabled or in some way being a drain on our social systems, we abort them. Um, this is the constant way we deal with things. But the world says, no, everybody has value. The world says certain jobs have more dignity than others. Being a pastor is holier in the church, we think this, than being, oh, I don't know, whatever, a barista, a garbage man. But it's not true, because all work has dignity. But to see this requires such an exercise of faith and imagination, because every image in the world says the opposite. And so, the call of revelation, the call of the gospel, is a call to imagination, to imagine that a sinner can be saved. It's literally an exercise of the imagination. Not because you're imagining something that isn't true, but that you're trying to imagine something that the world says isn't there. And it's very difficult for us. And so when we come to this passage, what's happening? Well, what's happening in chapter 18 is a sentence. Babylon has been, is being sentenced to its, its punishment. And God says, while it's being sentenced, hey, everybody, Christians, those of you who are believers, come out of the world, come out of Babylon, because of two things. You don't want to be caught up in her sin, 
So you don't want to participate in her sin, and you don't want to be implicated in the punishment that's coming for those sins. So come out of it. And here we have what some people may call a tension. The Bible's riddled with tensions, right? I predestine everything, but you're responsible for your choice. You are saved forever once you believe, but you better not stop believing. See these tensions? They're meant to be there. The Bible doesn't really work too hard to reconcile them because they want you to be uncomfortable. And this is another one. All through Revelation, he writes letters to the seven churches and says, stay in those cities and resist and be an agent of good in the cities through your work and your daily life and how you raise your kids. That's what your job is. But now he's saying, get out. So which is it? Well, a simple way to say it is this. He's not calling you to, cut, to leave the city. That would contradict literally everything in Revelation and in Scripture. But what he is saying is something akin to what happens if you're an addict. If you're, uh, let's say, a woman is addicted to uh, alcohol, she's an alcoholic. The only way for her to come out of alcoholism is to sever ties with two different things, two contrary things almost. One, you have to sever ties with those thoughts and experiences and uh, ideas and emotions that drove you and drive you to drink. Because there's baggage, we're all, we're all creatures of our experience. There's abuse, there's neglect, whatever else. So in one sense, the call is symbolic. Get out of alcoholism, meaning sever ties with those invisible problems. But there's also a physical part. To come out of alcoholism means you physically don't touch the bottle. You physically avoid the bar. You physically avoid those toxic relationships. And so you see there's both. And so when Revelation calls us, when God calls us to come out of Babylon, what is he saying? Well, I think what he is saying is he is calling us to do this. The church in the world is called to do the works of renewal, that we are meant to be in the city, close enough to the city to know and to be able to address its sins, but removed enough to not participate in the sins. And that is a balance that is very difficult, but it's nonetheless the one that we're called to balance through our work and our families and our day-to-day -day life. How do we live in Babylon without becoming Babylon? And I think this passage is showing us that it, without imagination, you'll never be able to do it because you have to somehow find a way to go into a city, into the workplace, into the marketplace, into politics, and be close enough to be able to change it and bring renewal and restoration to that, that industry or that place without falling into the trap of using its same weapons and ethics. If you go into politics, how do you witness as a Christian if you sling mud at your opponents like everybody else does? So what does it mean to be a politician but not use the weapons of a politician? What does it mean to be a Christian business person and not use the ethics of the world that say prophet is first, prophet is king, which you're going to see in this passage as well. And this is what we're being asked to do. So here's what I think we can see here, though much more could be said. We are to perceive, first point, death where, there, where we think we see life. When we look at the world, it looks like it's live and thriving and doing well, but it's actually dying. It's dead. So that's, it requires the imagination to see death amidst a thriving thing. The second thing is it demands that we see a dead end where the world suggests a future. The world says, this is the way. If you want to have a future, here's how to behave. Here's how to interact with the world. And we, through imagination, have to trust Scripture and say, it's actually a dead end, despite what it looks like. And lastly, we need to be able to perceive renewal in the ruins of Babylon. So we have to be able to see it's dead, not alive. It's a dead end and has no future. But it also, is it, we can renew it amidst the ruins, which is very difficult to see. How do you renew an industry? How do you renew the, uh, this city that is falling apart 
at the seams in some areas, right? And we'll talk some practicals about that as well. So we're going to do that. We're going to look at those three things. The first one is, how do we perceive death where there appears to be life? So let's start here. Jerome. This man named Jerome was a saint in many, many uh, Christian traditions. You may know him as the guy who wrote the um, Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. And he was also witness, first-hand witness to the decline and fall of Rome. Now, Rome fell over time. It wasn't as sudden as Babylon is depicted. But here is what Jerome wrote in the midst of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. A wretched empire, all save a few towns have been depopulated, and these the sword threatens without while hunger ravages within. I cannot speak without tears. I will keep silence concerning the rest, lest I seem to despair of the mercy of God. Our tears are dried by old age. Except a few old men, all were born in captivity and siege and do not desire the liberty they never knew. Who could believe this? How could the whole tale be worthily told? How Rome has fought within her own bosom, not for glory, but for preservation. Nay, how she has not even fought, but with gold and all her precious things has ransomed her life. Who could believe that Rome, built upon the conquest of the whole world, would fall to the ground? That the mother, uh, the mother herself would become the tomb of her people? And so, this is common for the, the, what we hear of a people who witnessed the fall of Rome and of any um, empire. It sounds a lot like what you would hear the prophets say when Jerusalem falls to Babylon or, or when the north falls to Assyria. And in Rome, it didn't happen quite as quickly as it does in Babylon, but what Babylon is, what's happening to Babylon in chapter 18 is they're being told that it's going to come to an end, and rapidly, on four different occasions, we're told on a single day or on a single hour, it's going to come. And when we talk about Babylon falling, we're talking about one big thing, but all these connected. Babylon is that spirit, that, that power used by the enemy to kind of influence people to corrupt the things that could be good in the world. So when Babylon falls, it's not just Babylon, but everything attached to it, and all those people and nations and cities that have aligned herself, them, themselves to Babylon. Think of it this way. If a big um, scandal hits Walmart, and Walmart at the head office has, is hit with a scandal, and they lose all kinds of money, that scandal is not limited to the Walton family in Arkansas, where their head office is. But everyone who has aligned themselves to Babylon, suppliers, workers, marketing departments, marketing firms, everything, feels the impact. Think about the way if the um, stock market in Tokyo takes a dive tomorrow, it's going to impact other stock markets because the implications of Babylon, of, of these places, are so intricate. The network has grown so much, the influence has spread that when Babylon is struck, all the cities of the world are struck. And so this poses a big problem, right? And the reason they've fallen is because they're sinners. It's, remember, Babylon has its roots in Babel, Genesis 11. And in Babel, what is their aspiration? We want to build a tower that reaches to heaven, right, and have us at the center of it. It's interesting that, it's not by accident, I don't think, that John here, God, through John, says that what is it that they have not actually succeeded in heaping to heaven? Not bricks, but their sin is heaped to heaven, it says. So they have managed to do it. They've built exactly what they wanted, not realizing that it was a sin that they were building, not any sort of a, a good kingdom. But there is a cure, right? Babylon is a sinner. All these nations are sinners. These people are sinners. We're all sinners. And there's a cure for sin. Repentance. It's right there. But the reason Babylon won't repent is very clear. It says it directly. She's in denial. 
Verse 7, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And when he puts those words into Babylon's mouth, those aren't just created there. These words have been in her mouth before. Isaiah 47, here's what it says, talking about Babylon. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely and who say in your heart, I am, and there is no other, notice, I am, right? God, I am. I am, and there is no other besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in the full measure, in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and great power of your enchantments. And so Babylon is in denial. It thinks it's alive. It thinks it's unassailable, but it's not. It's dead. And it doesn't seem to see it. And the only way to access a cure for sin is through repentance. But repentance simply won't come. What does come throughout this chapter, and all of Revelation you've noticed, is a cry for relief. It doesn't matter whose mouth it is, if it's Israel's or if it's Babylon. If there's a cry for relief but no repentance, you have not made yourself right with God. Read the book of Judges, and we're going to cover that in next year, probably early year. You're going to see Israel always cries out. They cry out in their sin. They cry out. I see people constantly cry out in the pain of their and the consequences of their choice, but that's not repentance. And what repentance is then? Thomas Watson, 17th century Puritan, wrote a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. Please buy it. Yes, it's a Puritan. Yes, it's written kind of old-fashioned. There's no finer book on repentance than this little tiny thing. And he makes this wonderful quote, either sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. That's pretty harsh, but he's Puritan. If you know those guys, you know that's the way they spoke. And he's right. He's capturing biblical truth here. Yes, Babylon could repent, but it won't. Because it, when you begin to see what repentance is, you see how dead the world is. And Thomas Watson, in this book, and I have to go very quickly here, has six things. He says there's six ingredients to repentance. And I hope this stings all of you, as it does me. Because when you see these six different steps, you realize, oh crud, I'm not so sure I've repented of certain things I claim I've repented of. And he's 100% right. Six things. Let me move very quickly. The first one. Oh, we're already on number three. Let's go one by one, though. Sight of sin. First, you have to know you've sinned. You have to see it, right? So that's pretty straightforward. The second one, then, oh, now we're back. Thank you, Heldon. Uh, is a sorrow for sin. And here's the part as a pastor I usually don't see. People feel bad that they're getting caught. They feel bad at the consequences of their sin but they very rarely, at least at first, come with sorrow over their sin. The man who has cheated on his wife is sad that he no longer is with her and he's kicked out and he's living in a hotel, but he is not yet sorrowful that he has wronged a covenant with God and with a woman. He's just upset that he's feeling pain. So that's key, and this order as well is important. Third, confession of sin. You must then confess the sin to the ones you've sinned against, God, and then if anybody else, human-wise. Fourth, Shame of sin, coming right afterwards, he says, then there's a shame. You realize, gosh, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by what I did. And that sounds like a bad thing. Shame is not bad. It is bad, however, if you get stuck there. If there's no remedy for sin, you get depression. But the next thing comes is hatred for sin. You then begin to hate the very sin you've, you've, you've given into. And then when you see it in other people, you begin to despise the sin. It's very careful here. You don't want to hate the person, right? 
You have to, but you do need to look at the sin and say, look at it. Look at how miserable it is. Look how destructive it is. And you begin to hate it. And lastly, there's a turning from sin. And this is very difficult too because it's a gray area. If you realize it's a sin, I'll just throw a random example, to um, work at a casino. If you say, you know, it's, I shouldn't work at a casino. It's no good. It's a sin. It's one thing to say that and to repent, but then do you quit the job? It's tough, right? It's tough to know that, but that is what the call is to turn entirely away from it. And if you're sorrowful over it, if you're shamed by it and you hate it, you will run from it. And that is hard medicine, which is why Thomas Watson says this medicine has six ingredients, because he knows it's medicine that sucks and it tastes terrible, but it is repentance. Now, Babylon cannot do this. Because it's, but although Babylon, the city and the world, is unrepentant, it still looks like it's alive, doesn't it? It looks like it has repented. There looks like there's health there. But the way to know that a city or any, your job, your life, your marriage, whatever it is, is decaying, is it's decaying. Because things that are alive don't decay. I learned this when I was in British Columbia years, 20 years ago in Terrace, British Columbia in the north. And during the salmon run, the locals took me out to go fishing. And I caught this big, um, this thing. Who's ever seen one of those sockeye salmon? It's beautiful, it's all red. I could see it, the water's so clear, I could see it right there. However, they were laughing at me, I didn't know why, because I'm reeling this thing and it's not fighting. And I'm like, that's weird. Why would it not be fighting? It's like a big fish. I then go, my dad used to fish, so I'm not afraid of my going. I stick my hands in that gill and it turns into jelly in my hands because I didn't realize that after salmon spawn, they almost immediately begin to die and deteriorate and decay. And they will swim and yet be half skeleton. See, I didn't know that. And they all laughed at the city boy, you know, who gets his handful of fish guts. Um, <laughs> wasn't very nice of them, but they did. Now, <laughs> and I realized at that point, and what I'm saying here is this, in order to see that this city that is thriving, now that COVID has come, it seems to have, have t- turned its corner and uh, the tourism industry is thriving. It looks like there's signs of life in the, ch- in the city. And yet what we're, able to, what we're asked to see is there's actually a lot of decay. What we're seeing isn't quite all of it. There's more going on. And there's a lot of signs of decay that we can see in the cities. I won't go into too many detail, but here's some. One, when God is excluded from the planning of a city, there's decay happening. Now, decay takes some time. The decay of a tooth may take longer than the decay of a salmon. But decay is occurring. When sensuality dominates the narrative, see, the the city will say, no, no, we talk about sex freely. It's because we're free from these antiquated ideas about chastity. See, it sounds like freedom. We have to see behind it and say, it's actually decay. It's actually a moral decay. Injustice. When injustice is in the city, they say, you know, there's lots of justice. But when you look behind it, you realize there's justice. But not for all. There is injustice in the system in many areas. Products become preferred over people. Have you noticed how slaves are part of the the cargo of Babylon? We'll talk about that in a minute. And then idolatry. When something other than God is the basis for life in a city, it is decaying. And of course, things that decay are dead. So make no mistake, the city is dead, but it requires our imaginations to see it. We have to look at it carefully and look to see how do we know what what is live, what isn't. Then let's move to the second one quickly. Dead ends. So we build, as people, what is in us. Anything that comes out of you is part of you. This is common sense. A fr- uh, an, an oak tree will only produce acorns. It won't produce strawberries. 
Carl will only produce swarthy Latin children. <laughs> no, I have a German wife who helps level out that gene pool. But, you see, it, we always produce what's in us, right? This is, our artists know this, that the art that comes out of you, if somebody says to somebody, why do you write songs like that as a musician? You're like, it's just what comes out of me. You can't help it, but build what comes out of you. And when you look at the sin of Babylon, it's in chapter 18 here in verse 7. She glorified herself and lived luxury, in luxury. And these are other ways of saying she was self-exalting and self-indulging. And these two core sins of Babylon seep into everything so that because those are the core sins, the foundations of city and we as humans are built on, lifting ourselves above God and in living in luxury. Because those are the core, everything they build comes, is tainted with it to an extent. So we find in Babylon that all of its systems, everything it creates, is geared towards bringing people and all those who are follow her to a place of self-exaltation and self-indulgence. And this is why you see the, the merchants and the kings are the ones who follow her. And not just those, they mourn, but they only mourn that they've lost the benefit that they had from her, you notice. They don't repent, they're not sad because she was such a nice person, you know, Babylon. But instead it's like, man, now we've lost the benefit we had. So, and in fact, it says it directly, since no one buys their cargo, they mourn. So Babylon's fall is their fall, as I said earlier. Now, when you look at the cargo, remember those long lists, there's 28 different items that are listed. Don't go too numerological, but it is four times seven to make 28. Two big numbers. Um, explore that in your community groups. But in these 28, it's important because it gives you a snapshot. He's not just wasting ink. There's a reason those 28 are there, right? He could have stopped, but he gives you 28. And when you start to roll out what those 28 are, you see these are the categories, okay? Roughly, there's wealth that's outlined. So the products, what the city was producing, what Babylon produces is wealth. Clothing, fine clothing generally. Furnishings and, not, and expensive furnishings at that. Delicacies that no one is going to get except for the rich. The worship life is impacted by the merc... Uh, by the market, their diets, farming and possessions, and then trafficking of humans. And so you begin to see that there's a few things. One, most of these things are items that rich people would have had access to, but no one else. So the market of Babylon is geared towards some, not all, the wealthy, not the poor, which is completely contrary to what the gospel says. Another interesting thing is a few scholars have gone and said, let me put a dot in the map of everywhere these items came from around the ancient world, and when you do that, you see that almost the entire known world was implicated in Rome's sin. Because where they're getting marble and cinnamon and everything from, when you put these dots, everything is implicated. So as a result, everything is, is, is mourning and crumbling when Rome comes and Babylon comes down. Every area of life was touched. And the reason Babylon is called a prostitute is it'll do anything for money. That's the very simple symbolism there. And the logical end of such a system that values things over people, profit over everything else, is humans will eventually become commodities. And John makes it very clear, because at that passage when it speaks about the cargo, you'll notice it says, and slaves, which are human souls. That word slaves isn't the word slave. Doulos is the word slave, where you get the word doula from, servant. Um, you and I in scripture, Paul refers to us as, if you're a Christian, as the doulos, the servants, the slaves of Christ. But this word isn't that. It's the word soma, which means body. So what he's saying is they market in cinnamon and marble and bodies. 
That's it. He's intentionally depersonalizing it to show you that humanity has just become another thing in the catalog of Babylon. And that is exactly what we're seeing, what we've seen forever, but today as well. We have sweatshops where people are being killed, worked to the bone, not treated fairly, terrible working conditions, and it's okay because I have nice shoes, right? We have um, suicides. In 2008, when the economy took a dive, people were jumping off bridges and over, off of buildings because they lost fortunes and the shame of it, especially in Asian countries where the honor and shame culture still dominates. All because of money. We see today, and I've mentioned it already, where inconvenient children will be aborted because they're no, it's not productive. They're not productive. If you're on a ventilator, I'm sorry, we pull the plug. Let's stop draining the system. I often wonder, at what point will we think that a 25-cent slug is cheaper than incarcerating a murderer for 25 years with no life, with no chance of parole? At what point do we say it's not worth it financially to keep this life alive? This is the way which things seem to be going, and that's the inevitable end of such a system. And the temptation in the world, though, is to look at this stuff and say, but the world looks like it's doing well, it's thriving. And we want to be able to join in those thriving markets who didn't join, well, maybe not in this room, but how about the Bitcoin thing? Who, is, who wasn't jumping on that to try to make millions? Who didn't join a million pyramid schemes of Bitcoin, right? And we want to j dive in, and Scripture and Revelation is saying, don't do it. There's no future in the world. It's falling. It's fallen and it's falling. Stop. Get away from it. But to do this requires imagination because you have to be able to look at the thriving world and say, there is no future in it. And to do that, let me give you a practical example. It's very simple. If you take the faith and work course, which I'm gonna, we'll, so we'll do again soon, you're going to see how we do this very practically in your workplace, any workplace, or any volunteer work, or if you're retired, any work you do at the home, any work we do. And you do a very simple thing, and I have to truncate it, but you do one of two, well, you, many things, but the first two are this. You first say, what should the world look like? What was the creative goodness that God intended for this city? Let's take the Niagara Falls tourism industry, okay? Tourism is now back a little bit. So we take that industry. Before you start assessing how terrible and decaying it is, you have to first say, well, what, was it, what should it be? What, is, what would godly tourism be? Is there going to be a tourism industry in the new earth if I want to go to a place I've never been to, a different part of the New Jerusalem? If there is, what would it look like? And here's what we do know. When you do that very quickly, tourism is, what we do is we're, it's hospitable. It's hospitality. We welcome people, strangers coming in, but things have been changed a bit because now they're paying for hospitality, right? But it's hospitality. They come and we show them this place. We show them a good time. We make sure they have enough food. They've got a safe place to live and to hang out. And we send them away better than when they came. That's what it should look like. Everybody should benefit, including the people offering hospitality. What do you have? Well, instead, you have the marks of sin. And this is where you, when you look and see what did the fall do to this industry? This is one, one example, well, many. First, work is incredibly seasonal. It's unstable. it's not secure. It's all based on how many people come in. So the work that is good, noble work is now not great. It's poor paying, generally. The kids working, this some here, at the zip line by the falls, how much are they getting paid? They can't live. And why can't they live? Because when you go there and you see one of them working there or in a restaurant, and I know I was a bartender, people will always say to you, so what's your real job? Right? What do, you, what do you want to do with your life? Because surely hospitality is not a career. See? We have now put an indignity on good, noble work. And then they don't get paid. There's no health benefits for them. And so I look at that and you then say, here's the goodness that was intended. Here's how sin has marred it. 
The question now is, where do I come up with the imagination to renew it? How do I bring some renewal to that industry? And this is where we move to the final point. You need the imagination to know Babylon has fallen, that it's decaying, and there's no future in it, but that there is reason to rejoice. Not that people are dying, but that the sin is dying. I don't take any joy in knowing that sinners will be killed when they're unrepentant. No joy in that. But I do take joy in knowing there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more injustice, no more human trafficking across the border in Niagara Falls. That I take incredible joy in. And that, I think, is what we're called to do. And we look at this, something interesting happens. That millstone is thrown in symbolically, and he says, well, Babylon will be gone, never seen again. Not just the city, but none of its products. Right? All of its injustice will be gone, gone. So there's reason to rejoice. And something interesting happens here. The voice then comes of this angel and says, you're no more going to hear the sound of music and of craftsmen and of marriages and those things happening in the city. Think about that. No more. Meaning, all you've been told so far is Babylon is horrible, right? And yet he says, no more will you hear these good things, which means even during these horrible seasons in Babylon's history, in real Babylon, and in Toronto, and Niagara Falls, and New York, even amidst that, he says, you're not going to hear any more of these good things, which means they were there all along. That even in down, sinful Babylon, God was pouring into it, which he writes, music, artisans, food production, light, marriages, relationships. So he's saying this. This is what the scholars call common grace. That even in the midst of sinful humanity, in these rotten cities that we can produce, God says, I'm not going to let them go. And he offers common grace, meaning it's this goodness and love that God extends to his undeserving creation so that the rain and the sun fall on all of them. That even if you're an unrepentant sinner, you still can have a good job, a safe place to live, good laws, family, joy, love. And this is God pouring out his common grace into the world because he loves it. Not saving grace, but common good grace. And he says, but that won't be there forever. And the reason is, Incredible what, what, what he says. Despite all the good that was in the cities, he then says, but your merchants were the great ones of the earth. You ignored the good that was in the city that I sent to you as a model for how you should be running your cities. And because you have done that, instead what you did is you elevated the merchants. You elevated this economy. And now sin has led to justice, to judgment. And so what we do when we look at that, you and I as Christians, we look at the common grace. We see these things in the city. We then look ahead to chapters 21 and 22, which I'm very looking forward to, which talk about the new heaven and new earth and the restoration of all things and the renewal of the earth. And when we do that, we look with hope. We can rejoice that sin is dying and dead. But then we look to the new city and say, how do we pull some of that into this present city? How do I look at the ruins of Niagara Falls and all these broken systems? And there's many. I've just talked about the hospitality industry. There's so many more. Every one of your industries, every job you're in has a goodness of it. As I've said before, there's pornography and the sex trade industry are really, and prostitution, they're probably the only un, in, irredeemable jobs that I can think of. Everything else can be redeemed, all of it. So we look at our jobs and we say, well, how, how would it look? And you have to go back to creation and think, what, what did God intend for our work? And then we say, how did sin mar it? But then how does the gospel change it? And how do I become an agent of that change? And there's so many things we could say, but I, I don't have the time for it today. But we're called to think about our work and our life through the lens of renewal, to imagine it, because this is what the gospel is. Christ looked at the broken world and said, here's how I made it. 
to be in relationship with me. But sin has marred it and separated them from me. So he imagines a world when sin could be atoned for and unity restored and the world restored. And then he takes the cost of that renewal on himself. And so you and I, when we go into our cities, into our world, into our jobs, as a grandparent, when you go into your grandparenting role or whatever your work is, you're cleaning your house, you're mowing the lawn, our job is to say, what does it look like if God was in this? If the fall hadn't happened, what would this job, this work look like? And then, how do I, if necessary, bear the cost of that? I have so many examples, but if you want to know much more, and we're going to talk more about this, join the faith and work class. We'll be going into so much more detail, and we'll go even more than the first class, because I've changed quite a bit of it. Because we want to know, how does our work serve to restore this broken world? All of it. You don't have to be a pastor to change the world. Quite the opposite. I don't know anything about the legal industry, but you have lawyers here. I don't know anything about any of your industries. You probably know more about my job than I know about yours, because you've all read the Bible, right? But what I can do is say, help. Let's look and see what might be if we started to renew things. And then, so if you're a Christian, let's do that, right? Look at the world and start to think about what it would mean to make this, this filthy world at times look radiant, as Christ looked at us in our filthy rags and made us radiant. But if you're a skeptic, the answer is, here, come out. It's not by accident that in John 11, Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. It's the exact same words, Lazarus, come out of darkness and death and into light. And when you as a skeptic, as a non-Christian are being called, you're being called right now by coming through my mouth, but through Christ, through his spirit saying, come out of the world and into life. That is the call to you today. It's a call to each one of us. So with that, let me pray.